TheWealthManagement.com Advisor Innovations Podcast is sponsored by LPL. As financial advice continues to evolve, LPL is at the forefront. Whether it's growing your RIA or building an independent practice, advisors can pick the business model, services, technology, and product mix that best meets their clients' needs. As a top wealth management firm, 100% dedicated to advisor success, LPL looks forward to learning how they can help you build your tomorrow today. For information and show notes, go visit lpl.com slash advisor innovation. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Advisor Innovations Podcast. I'm David Armstrong. This is the podcast where we speak to the folks who are moving the financial advisory space forward. And today, I can't think of a better person to talk about that with than Brian Hamburger, the founder of Hamburger Law Firm and Market Council. Brian, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, David, thanks so much for inviting me. So you, as the founder of Hamburger Law Firm and Market Council, you guys were early on in the advisor transition game, uh, the breakaway broker trend we used to hear about it. Take a step back for folks who don't, who aren't familiar with you, if there are any, is anyone out there who is not familiar with you in the space. And uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Market Council and what you guys do there. Oh, sure. Um, well, uh, I'm sure there's plenty uh, that are unfamiliar with, uh, with with the work that we do. One of the things I often hear, uh, David, after a talk is um, uh, someone will come up to me and say, you know, uh, I, I had no idea you did any of that stuff. Uh, so <laughs> I'd be curious to know uh, what people do think that uh, that I do. But um, about 21, a little over 21 years ago now, I uh, I was sitting at a at a law firm first law firm that uh, job that I had out of uh, law school. And um, uh, as I continued to have dialogue with, uh, with our clients, investment advisor clients and friends and, uh, that I've had throughout the industry, I, I recognized there was a common trait. Uh, and the, 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 the common trait was that they, um, they, they didn't know what they, what they didn't know. Uh, and they were, they, they were uh, suffering from these huge blind spots uh, along the way. And so, um, I, I guess with a certain degree of naivete, um, maybe a little bit of young brashness, I just said, you know, I, I think I can, I, I can solve for this. And so, with a you know, with a six month daughter in tow and a, and a brand new mortgage on a first house, uh, and and another child on on its way, I um, I set out to start both Market Council and the Hamburger Law Firm in in August of two thousand. Really, just working with advisors, um, you know, small to mid-sized advisors, who wanted some answers and didn't necessarily know the questions to ask. Um, and we started with a um, uh, with an outsourced regulatory compliance program uh, that did more than just simply respond to their inquiries, but rather furnish them with proactive services uh, based upon the information we collected up front. Uh, we complemented that with uh, with a law firm that was able to handle the related legal services. And we've been off to the races. I mean, it started out as a, as a firm of, of me and um, my administrative assistant at the time has, uh, has grown over the years, you know, to occupy uh, a space within our small industry that, you know, that I'm really proud of. Uh, and we work with advisors now at, at all stages of their life cycle, uh, whether it's someone who is exploring what independence is all about, someone who is launching uh, a new firm or a team launching a new firm, all the way to managing ongoing regulatory compliance, uh, working with them on a succession or continuity plan, and then eventually uh, some sort of exit, whether it's a sale or otherwise. And um, it's, uh, it's work we're really, 
really excited to be uh, able to wake up to each and every day and um, leave that impact uh, on that sp- on the space. Were most of your early clients uh, registered independent advisors, registered investment advisors, RIAs? Yeah, that- David, if you th- if you think back on the market at the time, right, so many were. RAAs, but they were only RAAs ancillary to their independent broker-dealer practices, right? Mm-hmm. So virtually all of them were what we would now call hybrid RAAs. Back then, we didn't call them that, right? We didn't we didn't have electric vehicles, so uh, we didn't we, we didn't grab that term hybrid yet. Right. But um, you know, but they were fee plus commission guys, and um, you know, and working with them through the various conflicts of interest that weren't readily apparent. Uh, to them at the time. Uh, but as they became more and more apparent, as it became a little more comfortable to talk about conflicts of interest, um, we found a lot more of those that were both fee and commission moving to a fee-only uh, practice over the years. And uh, I think the market has, uh, has done the same. And so when I first became aware of market counsel, you were one of the first law firms that was giving legal assistance, counseling, uh, to advisory firms that saw an opportunity to get out from under the yoke of the Wall Street sales machine, right? Uh, I think we knew you as the the the, the firm that was helping uh, Wirehouse, what traditionally called Wirehouse Brokers, break away and start up their own registered investment advisory shop. But did that come around later? No, really early on. Uh, early on, I still remember working with our very first client uh, who said they wanted to leave Merrill Lynch. And um, uh, at the time, you know, my focus was primarily on uh, on regulatory work, but as a, as a young attorney, uh, you're uh, you tend to say, uh, "Hey, I, th- I think we could help here." Um, and it was a lot more you know, a lot more work than I ever anticipated getting into this space. But I remember sitting down and having lunch with him and talking about why why he wanted to leave uh, Merrill Lynch, and he was so eloquent in the way he described it. He says, I, I harbor no ill will towards this firm that helped me launch my career. He said, it's just a matter of, uh, it's just simply a matter of economics. He said, when I joined them, uh, they invested heavily uh, into me. He said, I, I would take that business card out of my wallet and I would, uh, I, I would hold it up and it would, it would open doors. Uh, literally people would, would ask, you know, what was I thinking or what, what, you know, what my current thoughts were on different areas because of that mark on the card. He said, and slowly over time, both because of actions that the firm had undertaken and because of his development of his own career, uh, he found that that card was sitting in his pocket longer and longer. Uh, and he found that no longer was that card opening doors for him, but actually that card was sometimes uh, hurting his chances of landing a new client or, uh, or engaging in new dialogue. And he said that it was at that moment, it was an inflection point where he realized that the value that he was bringing exceeded that that the firm was bringing and he wanted to go independent. And that conversation resonates with me all the time because I'm working with, um, uh, with individuals and teams who have spent 20, 30, sometimes 40 years um, at renowned financial institutions and um, you know it, organizations that have had um, just a, an outsized brand and, uh, and have made a huge impact within the securities industry and on the lives of so many Americans. So many of the advisors we speak to uh, really recount the same type of story, which is, which is that they, they're at the point in their careers where they don't need that brand to establish credibility, that the credibility, if anything, may be watered down 
mm-hmm. or diminished by that brand. And so um, that is um, that practice, the, the work of helping advisors who are in the wirehouse or bank or trust uh, company channel and helping them make their way out of captive employment and over to independence is a huge component uh, of what we do. Sometimes it's what we did in the past, which is move them to their own firm. But more and more, we're doing that as an integrated component of existing firms in the independent space who are looking to recruit into that space. So no longer is it just a decision of, okay, you're leaving, we're going to set you up with a brand new firm. That certainly is the case much of the time, but more and more, uh, we're seeing existing firms uh, play, uh, play a role, uh, which, which is an amazing, uh, which is creating an amazing array of options now for those looking to go independent, but not necessarily go out on their own. When you say existing firms, we're talking about this new crop of aggregators, whatever you want to call them, tuck-ins, roll-ins, uh, uh, acquirers, uh, this uh, on the independent side, uh, that are becoming larger and larger. In some cases, national institutions uh, that can compete in their own right. Is that what we're talking about? Absolutely, and and I think you know, but by your inability to really you know put one word on them, I think we articulated some of the confusion that we've created within the space. So back in the day, it really wasn't an option, right? It was I'm leaving the firm and I'm starting my own firm, right? That was the that was the the single lane road that we had uh, over to independence. Now we've got about a uh, an eight lane highway uh, to independence, uh, much like the New Jersey Turnpike, right? It's not not terribly well marked, right? The signage is a little <laughs> off, and you know we might be missing some mile markers along the way um, because people don't understand the abundance of options that they have when moving over to independence. Sure, they could still set up their own firm, and uh, and we are huge fans of those that decide decide to go what we call fully fully independent, right? Creating their own firm, creating their own destiny. Uh, identifying what architecture uh, they want to support. But there are plenty of existing independent firms that are already in the space that have built a value proposition uh, around recruiting new talent. Uh, there are aggregators in the space who are helping firms with with the launch and then uh, acquiring their interests. There are platforms in the space that are doing an amazing job at assist firms in, um, uh, in moving over to independence without having to uh, to do it completely on their own. There's just, there's an abundance of options. And, and that array has, has continued to make uh, independent wealth management uh, just such an enticing option for so many financial advisors, regardless of where they currently sit. Yeah. And do you think, we've never had this conversation before, but do you think that the warehouses or the traditional Wall Streets, you know, uh, uh, product distribution firms, uh, the Merrill Lynch's, Wells Fargo's, Morgan Stanley's of the world, uh, clearly, they're not sitting around just watching this happen, right? They're evolving and changing themselves and, and, and moving more towards the planning side as well. But do you think that their uh, traditional insistence on such heavy product sales kind of environment is what fuels a lot of the growth of the RIA space? Uh, I do. Uh, I think there's, you know, there's so many embedded conflicts of interest in firms that want to uh, be vertically uh, integrated, right? So, you, you know, you've got these warehouses that... Uh, that want to house everything, uh, everything from uh, the products that you mentioned uh, to the trading, uh, to the custody, uh, to the cash products that uh, you know that are sitting ancillary to uh, to the other uh, investment products. They want to uh, they want to include even more. They want to include banking and, and lending uh, mm-hmm. services. And, and so, as a result, advice 
ends up taking a backseat to the product sales. Um, and I think that um, I used to say, you know, don't count these firms out, right? There's just, there's a lot of really smart people at these firms and they're, you know, they're going to figure out how to counter the, uh, the independent movement. But I'm not so sure that that's my, uh, that, that I, I feel that conviction anymore. Really? Uh, I think that, um, uh, I, I think that they have looked to profitability uh, over uh, all else. I think they're, um, you know, they say, well, if we could sell this product uh, and we can manage compensation structure for, um, uh, for advisors that perform at a certain level, uh, we can run a very profitable company and it doesn't always have to be about headcount. It doesn't have to be just about growth. And so I really think that these firms are looking at profitability overall else. Um, and uh, while I don't have any clear evidence to, uh, to back up this statement, I honestly do believe that they have ceded the ground to the larger, more sophisticated advisors, recognizing that they can't ever uh, create a, an environment of open architecture that will satiate uh, the appetite of these advisors uh, because of the myriad of con- conflicts that they have and the burden that, uh, that supervision uh, would, would be for those types of, of practices. Um, and so it, it, just, it, it just is becoming uh, a natural arc in the career of a successful financial advisor that after spending a significant amount of time within one of these firms that they just have to pick up their chips and, uh, and move on to, uh, to a different structure, one that gives them uh, greater capabilities. One of the things when I first started looking at this, and you helped me understand a lot of this early on, uh, is the d- lengths to which a lot of these vertically integrated warehouse, for lack of a better word, firms would go to keep their advisors inside the corral, inside the fence. Uh, uh, tactics like uh, marking up a, an advisor's you know, regulatory U4 form just before they walk out the door or, or you know, just various ways that they've made it really difficult for this to happen. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. What was, what was the reaction of these firms when, when this RIA movement first, you know, really started taking off? Well, you know, going back, uh, to when this, this really started to happen, we didn't have anything like the broker protocol. So, you know, it was very much the wild west, right. Where, uh, folks would leave, uh, advisors would leave on a, um, on a Friday uh, afternoon. We would schedule it for around four or four thirty in the afternoon, uh, and we only scheduled it for four or four thirty because it reduced the likelihood that uh, that their at the time prior employer would be successful getting in front of a judge to um, uh, to successfully get a temporary restraining order. Uh, we knew that we would at least have the weekend uh, to um, uh, to communicate with clients uh, and um, and firms would just continue to ratchet up their their tactics. Uh, they would they have uh, increased their surveillance of um, uh, of advisor activities. I mean, uh, everything is now data driven, right? Because technology can often detect what people can't, whether it's aberrations in print jobs uh, or uh, changes to someone's schedule in visiting the office mm-hmm. uh, or documents that the person uh, looks at within their corporate uh, network infrastructure. Um, so surveillance is, uh, has increased substantially. The you know the days of the TRO uh, were were all but gone, but have really uh, made a comeback over the last uh, over the last couple of years. 
uh, primarily under the name, not of restrictive covenants, which was the basis that they used to go in under, but on client privacy and, uh, and data security. Mm. And, you know, and by the way, that's a much uh, more altruistic argument for firms to go into court with where, where they're saying, hey, we're not, we're not here to restrict an advisor from leaving. We're here to restrict them from stealing this customer data, right? That's kind of the argument that they're- It, it sounds uh, a lot better anyway. Yeah, it sounds much better. They make for a far more sympathetic litigant um, and um, you know, certainly uh, uh, gives us our, our work um, to, uh, to go and encounter those types of arguments. So um, those tactics continue. Uh, you know, we continue to have firms who are delaying or marking up uh, uh, people's uh, CRD records in, the, in, in a U5 on the way out the door. Uh, we're having we're having firms do their best to sully the reputation of advisors uh, that are leaving. We've had them uh, construct any sort of uh, lie about the the advisor, gambling and drug problems, family problems, really anything to cast uh, aspersion on um, on a financial advisor's ability to continue to be a trusted advisor and service their uh, their clients. And so, the best we can do to counter is to have a well planned transition. And so we'll. We'll work with advisors, depending upon the sophistication, anywhere from three to 12 months ahead of their eventual departure. Uh, we'll work with them on the entire plan, um, everything from you know, what their needs, goals, and objectives are, their tolerance for risk. You know, we've got advisors who are leaving who say, I, 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 can't, I can't sustain a lawsuit. You know, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night or you know, my family wouldn't, uh, wouldn't talk to me. Um, and so we've got to take that into consideration, right? There are some transitions we have to be far more conservative on than others. Um, we we often have to proceed on every transition with um, with backup plans, right? Plan B and Plan C are standard when we are uh, working through these uh, these transitions. And you know, well planned transitions are really elegant. You know, Plan B and Plan C never see the light of day. Uh, in hindsight, they look like a total waste of time and money, uh, but uh, they are what allows Plan A to to work so flawlessly, um, and um, you know we're really excited. I'll tell you, the transition work is the component of our work that allows for us to really um, have a lot of energy um, and adrenaline that pumps through our office on a weekly basis. I mean, we're constantly talking about imminent launches and uh, you know business launches and employment transitions. And how do you not get excited about that story, right? How do you not get excited about the launch of new businesses in, uh, you know, to support sure. um, the American economy and, and just the entrepreneurial dreams of people who have worked at these institutions for so long um, and now are about to really take that destiny in their, into their own hands? It's, it's really exciting. Particularly in an adversarial kind of situation, right? I mean, if there's the, the person who's trying to keep that from happening. Um, you know, so we did have the broker protocol there for years, uh, which was put in place that kind of, from what I understand, was a bit of a ceasefire amongst these warehouse firms uh, when advisors were jumping from warehouse to warehouse. Uh, and instead of just engaging in a bunch of lawsuits back and forth, they decided, okay, there's a certain amount of information you're, you can take as an advisor to this other firm and we won't sue you. And in return, you, you know, to come in the other way, you're not going to sue us. That seemed to put the sort of a, a bit of grease under the wheels of advisors transitioning. That's gone away largely. A lot of firms have dropped out of this broker protocol. Does that make your work harder? Or at least does it give you more work? So 
Uh, it's interesting because I, I think it's been a component, but it hasn't been as big of a component as I think people have given it uh, have given it credit for. Uh, the broker protocol, you know, it didn't change everything, but it did change people's perception. Uh, and I think that the uh, I think it did a lot of good in the space because it did alleviate people's um, uh, restrictions that they had that were stemming out of uh, restrictive covenant. But what? Um, but it didn't give them a get out of jail free card, right? It wasn't a carte blanche to leave the firm and do whatever you want to do, right? The the broker protocol was very prescriptive in terms of here is the protocol that you need to follow, uh, here's the eligibility criteria, and here's what you can then do. Uh, and people kind of skipped that part. Uh, I think too many people, too many people uh, looked at the broker protocol the way my kids used to look at any type of condition, right? I used to say, well, if you clean your room, you know, we'll go for ice cream tonight. And I can tell you, I would get home from work and they didn't hear if you clean my room part. All they heard was we're going for ice cream tonight. Um, and so I, I think advisors fell into that same trap where they heard, oh, so I can get out of here and the firm can't hold me uh, responsible for these uh, restrictive covenants. They missed the other part, right? They missed the part, you know, the limitations on um, joint ownership of the book, or they missed, you know, the limitations on maybe the way in which their book was segregated between the brokerage firm and the bank or, or how the firm tried to call their participation or limit their participation in the broker protocol. They, you know, they tended to skip the details. So I think the fact that we have some more potholes on that road to independence might not be a terrible thing in that people are now asking the questions. They're not just assuming that they are subject to that type of protection. Um, and, and that's a good thing. Listen, there's no indentured servitude here. Um, you know, no one has to continue to work at a place where they're currently working. The question is, how do they leave and what can they do once they leave? And so those are really worthwhile questions to have answered. Um, and so I think the fact that it's not so black and white, it's not so cut and dry, uh, allows people to pause and to consider the risks uh, that are inherent in such a transaction. You know, risks, uh, risk is not a dirty word, right? Advisors deal with risk all the time. It's, it's a critical component of building uh, and constructing a portfolio. Uh, strange, though, that when they become business owners, they, they don't want to often don't want to anticipate or talk about the risk. And I think, I think it's a good conversation to have early on in terms of here's the risks we're going to assume, here's the ones that we're going to mitigate, and here's why we're doing it this way, um, because they become far more intelligent about the choices that, uh, that they're making, very much like one of their clients would be on, on a discussion about portfolio construction, right? You Advisors tend to crave for an engaged client, you know, someone who really wants to know the why, um, and that's the position we sit in, right? We want advisors to really care as to why we're making some strategic decisions in connection with their move, which may make their move look different than that of their colleague just a few years ago, right? And there's reasons for that. Yeah. I, I don't want to dwell on the, the transition thing uh, too long, but it is fascinating to me. It all comes down to who owns the client relationship, right? And this is where the 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 kind of the captured uh, advisor, the firm thinks that they own the client relationship. The advisor really kind of in reality owns the advisor or the client relationship. And when they leave, the question of when they can solicit those clients to come over with them. Uh, and that's that's where the kind of the heart of the the contention is, right? Uh, when well, you it, do, it, go ahead. Go I'm ahead. sorry. I was going to say, it may be even a little more than that, David, because 
you know, I think it does start with uh, ownership of the client. And, you know, legally, in most circumstances, uh, on the cases we're talking about, uh, the firm owns the client. Uh, you know, the, from a legal perspective, they, uh, you know, they have ownership over that relationship. You know, that said, practically speaking, the advisor uh, owns the trust component of the relationship, which is the most valuable component uh, in that relationship. And, and then if we zoom out even further, the reality is that no one owns the client, right? The client can go anywhere they choose mm-hmm. to go. And so I think that's what creates so much of the confusion. Restrictive covenants is definitely a big component, right? The non-solicitation, the non-competes and, you know, and other uh, types of restrictions. Those are uh, certainly big issues, but there's others, right? And the, the other issues are in the areas of confidentiality and trade secrets and, uh, and privacy and data security, right? Because even if an advisor has the ability to, to solicit do they have their hands on the data that they need in order to properly service that client uh, without without interruption? So it, it does become a bit of a complex web that we weave, and it's why that uh, you know on every one of these transitions, regardless of our perceived threat level, on every one of these transitions, we're going to sit down and we're going to draft a written plan that identifies puts all these issues into um, into um, a document. Um, and identifies how we're going to handle them. So that way anyone can go back uh, during this whole, uh, at any point in the process, even if it's in the middle of the night, when they say, well, how are we dealing with this? They can look and they can see, oh, here's how we're dealing with it. And here's why we decided to deal with it that way. And if we need to revisit it, we can, but it all centers around uh, that written plan uh, to transition to another firm. Yeah. Uh, so beyond the transition work uh, what you guys are doing, you're also doing a, a lot of, you say, outsource compliance work uh, for independent firms. And you know, there's been obviously big changes in the regulatory world here. Uh, uh, what are you seeing now as advisors' biggest challenges when it comes to facing the, uh, either the SEC or FINRA? Uh, what, are, what, are, what, are, what are they most surprised about? What are they, what are they least prepared for? What are, what are the biggest issues that they need to understand when dealing with uh, the current regulatory environment? You know, the, the current regulatory environment is an interesting one. Um, you know, we are we continuing to reel from Reg BI, uh, and there you know, seems that we have an SEC that is receptive to making some uh, substantial changes uh, to the way that the last, uh, the prior administration uh, had addressed that. And so more to come on whether the SEC will be looking to make radical changes, but they have continued with um, uh, with regulatory developments. And this is after many, many years of, of not really doing anything. Um, so I think the industry is um, pleased to see a regulator once again, assuming the reins uh, and furnishing it with, uh, with regulation ahead of headline risk, ahead of... Uh, uh, really, you know, politicians identifying this as uh, as an issue. Uh, it's good to see regulatory development again. I, I don't think that we are where we were 20 years ago, where people are just simply confused about new developments in regulation. There's a lot of sources out there. I think I think what people are confused by is there's so many information sources. They just they don't know how it necessarily applies to them. Uh, so when we, you know, when we dive in deep and we start working with uh, w- with an existing firm who's been in business for some time, and they say, you know, we want need help on managing our uh, regulatory compliance, 
I think it's surprising, uh, most surprising to them that everything is a process in a, in a strong compliance program, that uh, everything is documented. Um, I think they're surprised that just because there's not a rule that they still have to do something. They're, it's this whole um, principles-based regulation that the SEC um, really talks about for RIAs, as opposed to rules-based regulation that we that we see FINRA um, utilizing for uh, for broker dealers. The the rules based regulation is pretty easy for people to wrap their head around, right? There's oh, well, there's a rule, and this is what I need to do. And in addition to the rule, I'll follow the interpretive guidance. But the principles based makes it a little more difficult because people then interpret it in uh, in different ways. And so I think that's been some of the biggest challenge. I think there's also been a, a lot of relatively new pressure within the RIA space to be more than a fee-only investment advisor, to engage in practices that are not traditional uh, to the fee-only RIA space, which isn't necessarily a problem in and of itself. It's just that these practices require uh, an assessment of uh, conflicts of interest and whether they're properly disclosed and whether whether they're proper to begin with. And then if they are proper, whether they're properly disclosed and whether... um, uh, clients are um, really understanding that disclosure and signing off on the appropriate agreements. Uh, I think that I think the business and the technology associated with the RAA practices are advancing at such hyperspeed that it's been hard for regulators to keep up. Uh, but in a principles-based world, they don't really have to keep up, right? Because they still get to regulate utilizing 2020 hindsight. Um, right. So it really is imperative for advisors to modify their practices to all of these new issues that you guys are writing about, you know, each and every day. Well, tell me about that. You said that there's pressure on the advisor to move beyond just the fee-only construction that you know traditionally they've had. What kind of pressures are those? Pressures for to sell product? Pressures to you know also give their clients insurance? What what kind of pressures are we talking about? Well, the you know the secret is out that uh, that advisors serve a role often as their client's most trusted advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that, uh, they are very lucrative distribution points. And whether that's distribution for insurance, uh, estate planning services, accounting services, private investments, uh, alternatives, uh, you, know, you name it across the board, uh, everyone seems to have figured out that RIAs uh, are a wonderful point of distribution. Uh, It's not a big stretch for RAs to say, well, how do I then participate in this additional work that we're doing? How do we either put a fee structure around it? How do we receive a referral fee or a portion of these fees? Um, And every time we do that, it creates uh, conflicts of interest. Uh, Mm -hmm. On top of that, uh, we have new entrants into the space. We have a lot of new money that is flowing into the space. That's private equity money. That's money from from venture capital firms. money from asset managers uh, that are looking to invest in, uh, in RAAs. And every one of those investments carries with it um, an opportunity or really a burden uh, to look at the conflicts of interest that it creates, if it does create any. Um, and I think a lot of firms are trying to diagnose that themselves. It's kind of like if I just you know, had a, a pain and just tried to figure it out for myself instead of going to a doctor. I mean, um, it's not that they're not skilled at looking at things like conflict of interest. It's just that they're most likely jaded by their own self-interest, right? So it's hard knowing that they wouldn't do anything 
to purposely harm one of their clients, it's hard for them to evaluate whether one of their practices is truly a conflict of interest. Um, and so that's often a role that we're playing with so many of these advisors as they are growing and getting into these new areas and becoming more sophisticated. The question becomes, are any of these components creating new conflicts of interest that we need to separately address? So if I'm hearing you right, a lot of these new networks that are uh, coming around of RIA firms, be it the focuses, the dynasties, the high towers, whatever they are, um, you know, a lot of times they will say, well, okay, we're going to either acquire or have a partnership with this particular RIA because they bring a certain skill in, say, accounting, or they bring a certain skill in estate planning. And that we can sort of plug into our larger network and begin to refer all these other advisors or clients of these other advisory teams that were also part of the network over to them to you know, uh, grow out our service offering. You're saying there is where the conflicts are beginning to arise? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty vanilla one, right? That's pretty easy. And that could be a conflict of interest. Certainly, if an advisor is making a recommendation to, uh, to a service provider and the primary basis upon which they're making that recommendation is um, that they are going to receive a portion of that fee, either directly or indirectly. Directly is easy. Indirectly would be because that service provider is part of the same affiliation group and indirectly the profits flow up to a hold co or some type of uh, unified company where the advisor also has an interest, yep. then yeah, that creates a conflict of interest, of course. Uh, but these are becoming much more complicated than that, right? That's a pretty easy one, right? But what do you do when, um, when you're sitting as a portfolio company uh, within a, uh, uh, as, as one of the investments of a venture capital uh, firm mm-hmm. or private equity rather, mm-hmm. uh, and another portfolio company is, um, uh, is someone you want to collaborate with on, on a project, right? It, it creates, creates conflicts of interest. And so a conflict of interest for an advisor is a problem in an objective sense. It's not a problem in a bad sense. It's a problem meaning that, okay, well, we need to now solve for that problem, right? Like, uh, like a math problem, right? Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not a bad thing. It's just something we can't ignore, right? And so we need to solve for that problem. We need to take a look at, okay, what does this business relationship look like? Who benefits uh, from it? Are there other options that might be in the best interest of clients? And if we're limiting that choice, uh, we need to make sure that we're properly uh, disclosing why we're limiting that choice and really, you know, what's in it for the advisor and what the, uh, what the, what the client's other choices may be. It just strikes me that a lot of these outside money coming into the space of private equity, venture capital, even asset management firms, as you say, uh, still don't always really understand the RIA space. And they I agree. They don't get that you can't just drop some money and incentivize folks to act the way you want them to act. Yeah, we're, um, you know, w- unfortunately, one of the fastest growing trends that we are dealing with are people that have entered into business transactions over the last several years who won out. Um, and, and it's buyers and sellers. So it's just, it's just missed expectations. And the, the most recent one I was dealing with is uh, a small asset management company who acquired an RAA and have been dumbfounded as to why they haven't been able to utilize that RAA's uh, advisors to distribute their product. Um, and quite frankly, it was just a complete misunderstanding of what an RAA was. I, I know it sounds very basic to you and I who, who live in this space, but it was a real misunderstanding of, of what an RAA was and that the fact that these advisors are fiercely independent, they, um, they treasure their objectivity 
And the fact that they were owned uh, at a minority basis by this asset management company was not in and of itself going to uh, convince these advisors to distribute uh, affiliated product. And in fact, speaking with many of the advisors, they specifically avoided the affiliated product because they didn't want their clients to uh, to ask them about a potential conflict of interest. So if there was an equal product with another unaffiliated provider, then um, uh, then they would select that one. So it's it's really interesting what's going on uh, right now in the space. I think that uh, there's been a lot of money that has uh, that has come into uh, into the space in a very short period of time. Uh, and we'll see, you know, we'll see uh, where everything levels out uh, in terms of, uh, of watermark. But, you know, these uh, these valuations that we're seeing are not sustainable in a normal economic model, right? Those valuations suggest to you that there are other issues at play. And I think that, um, you know, the most significant issue that's at play is that these acquirers think that they can run a more profitable business than the founders. Uh, I think that's one of the most critical issues that's driving up the uh, you know the value of these uh, of these businesses. And I think it's largely on the thesis that they can um, that they can distribute additional product, uh, not not pare down expenses all that significantly. Uh, I could be wrong, but in speaking to a lot of acquirers, it seems to be what's driving them of late. Hmm. Hey. You know, also asset managers uh, uh, getting into the, the you know robo advisory game, uh, buying up those platforms as well seems to think that there. I mean, if you're an asset manager, you're really looking for distribution. That's what you do. <laughs> well, you're you're realizing that it's probably not long that you're going to distinguish yourself with um, uh, by your investment selection, right? Because so much of that is becoming automated. Uh, and uh, you know, and runoff of um, uh, of formulas and uh, and data, uh, you're probably not going to distinguish yourself uh, in fees, right? Because there's been such fee compression uh, within the the asset management space, and so I think asset managers are left with you know really one piece of that formula, which is we need to have the best distribution around, and uh, and I think that's what has them looking uh, at all these new areas. Fascinating. Um, your passion and understanding of the independent advisory space comes, yes, from your early work in the in the law firm. But your father was an advisor, correct? He was. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was. He became an advisor uh, by way of um, financial planning. Mm-hmm. Um, so, kind of made his way from actually insurance sales uh, over to financial planning, uh, and was uh, an independent uh, at an independent broker dealer. And then he ran a large uh, OSJ uh, at that independent broker dealer uh, and created a hybrid practice. So, uh, so I had uh, had an RAA, and so you know I got to see his struggles along the way. I got to uh, sit in on his study groups and uh, and hear from a lot of his friends and colleagues uh, as I was um, you know in college and uh, even high school, um, and hear some of the things that they were frustrated with, not just in the area of RIA regulatory compliance, but also in the area of broker-dealer regulatory compliance. But more important than all that, just as small business owners, right? They uh, they simply didn't know what they didn't know. They um, you know going back to what we talked about early on, they just um, they were just frustrated that you know it just seemed like an endless array of of issues that were coming at them. And um, I just 
I, I just thought there was uh, there was a way for us to capture all that and deliver this on a more measured curriculum so that they didn't feel like they were drinking from a fire hose all the time. Yet you didn't want to join the advisory firm. No, I don't think that that's where I can uh, really make an impact. There's so many great advisors out there and, and I've, and I knew it then. And, uh, and I know it even more now. I mean, there are, you know, advisors are truly gifted uh, with a, such a high degree of client empathy, an amazing amount of patience balanced with, uh, with strong analytics. And when I think of, uh, you know, the real core value proposition of an advisor, right? Sitting around a you know, proverbial dining room table with a family and helping them grapple, not just with the, the family's most uh, significant financial challenges, but with the family's most significant challenges, right? I think that that, you know, that takes a really special type of individual. Um, and, um, you know, and I, I applaud uh, the work of, uh, of great financial advisors. I think that they, um, you know, they, they sit a lot as, uh, as great lawyers, right? Everyone likes to, um, everyone likes to throw shade at uh, financial advisors or lawyers, but, but everyone loves theirs, right? It's, 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 a, it's a very strange, strange dynamic, but I think, uh, I think great financial advisors are, doing, uh, are just doing uh, unbelievable work. Yeah. Well, and I know that many of them appreciate what you do too. So, uh, Brian, I, we're at the top of the hour. I know I, I can't keep you longer than that. So thanks very much for taking the time to do this with us. You know, it's always a pleasure to sit down and uh, talk shop with you, David. Thanks so much for having me. And you've been listening to the Advisors Innovation Podcast. This is David Armstrong. Thank you very much. This podcast is sponsored by LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member FINRA SIPC. LPL Financial is a separate entity from and not affiliated with wealthmanagement.com.